0: Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Matthew, the 26th chapter. And we're going to be looking at verses 36 through 39 this morning. I had fully intended to present a message regarding America at the crossroads today, and the Lord changed my mind about that as I work through it this week. I'll be doing that next Sunday, sort of a post-July the 4th message. I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. Let me ask you a question before we read this section of Scripture. The question is Would it surprise you to know that Jesus Christ suffered from depression? Would that come as a stunning piece of truth? Well, let's see what the Scripture says about this. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 39. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying... My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Do you ever find depression encroaching on your joy and your peace in your life? Well, Jesus did. And what we need to understand here at the outset is that Jesus never sinned. It is not a sin to suffer from depression. Now, I would... Say on the heels of that, that some depression is related to sin. It is very clear that in Scripture there are episodes of people who were in despondency because they were unwilling to let go of sin. But in Jesus' case, that was not true. Jesus was at a place that nobody had ever been before, nobody could actually go to because of what lay before him and why he was in that position, and nobody in the future will ever have that kind of situation. He was under incredible spiritual attack. The devil trained his big guns on Jesus. Now, Jesus is not the first person in history to this point in Matthew 26 who had such a barrage aimed at him. Maybe not Quite to the level, but we know that Moses, the great leader of the children of Israel, out of bondage, he found himself in great distress, and we might call depression, spiritual depression we might add. And then also Elijah, who was the prototype of the prophets. His name is at the head of the list when you read the Scripture about the prophets. He himself wished that he were dead. Imagine that. A lesser prophet, Jonah, had the same experience. He wished that he were dead. These are men who were filled with the Spirit of God. Moses, Elijah, and lest we forget, you'll remember that when Jesus took Peter, James, and John, the three who are mentioned in this passage that we're looking at today, to the Mount of Transfiguration, who should show up but Moses, the man through whom God gave the law, and then Elijah, the representative of the prophets. These were godly people, and they were under attack, undoubtedly, as Jesus was by the devil. The Bible talks about how we who follow Christ need to be alert, because our adversary, the devil, roams around like a ravenous lion seeking someone to devour And the good news for us is, even though He does come close to devouring us, greater is He who is in us than Satan who is in the world. Who is in us? Jesus Christ is in us. And Jesus fought this battle with spiritual depression in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 and following, so that when we are faced with depression of a spiritual nature, we will be able to ward it off. Let's consider now how to take a Christ-like approach to depression. It comes right out of this passage of Scripture, and the sixth approach that Jesus took or stepped toward victory over that is found in the book of Hebrews. So let's look at verse 36 again. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, "'Sit here while I go over there and pray.'" And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. So, here's the first thing we need to understand. We need to surround ourselves with close friends who are followers of Jesus Christ when we find ourselves in such a situation. This is not unique to Jesus. It was also true of the man we know as the Apostle Paul. So, if you'll turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians, we're going to look at chapter 7, verse 6. Now, think for a moment what that statement Jesus makes to these friends of His when He says, I need you with me. I want you to watch and pray with me what that would have done to them. We know that Later in this episode, they actually were so filled with grief themselves that they fell asleep. The tendency, of course, of us would have been the same. Because they had left everything to follow the Lord. And they were depending upon the Lord to fulfill them. They had looked to Him as their intercessor. The thought of their praying for Him had probably never crossed their minds. Now, there's a lesson for us. Perhaps you have a spiritual mentor, someone who has discipled you, someone to whom you look as the person who is perhaps the one human being that is really that stabilizing force in your life when you sense depression or difficulty coming into your life. What we need to understand is all of us need encouragement and all of us are in need of prayer. But Jesus understood the importance of surrounding Himself with close spiritual friends who were followers of Him. In the case of Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6, and let's pause here just a moment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, many of you could quote this verse, you may not know where it's found exactly, but this is what Paul writes. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And here we see him imitating Jesus in this particular situation in which he finds himself. He is burdened with difficulty in his life. And he is eager for encouragement. Look at verse 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Paul was... Depressed, as were his companions. Otherwise, he would not have stated what he says here as he stated it. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us at the coming or in the coming of Titus. So the arrival of this man Titus was a great encouragement to Paul and his companions as they were under a heavy weight of spiritual depression. Now, let me ask you, I know most of you know the answer to this question, Who was Titus to Paul? Tell me. He was his spiritual son, wasn't he? He had evidently introduced Titus to Jesus, and he had built him up. He had invested in his life. He was like Timothy was to Paul. Titus was to Paul. Here comes Titus, eager to see his discipler, his spiritual father, Wanting to be with him. And little did Titus know, when he arrived, he would be a source of encouragement to Paul. James, John, and Peter were called upon to be that kind of source of encouragement to Jesus. Jesus surrounded himself with people who were following him. And so, Paul was excited to have Titus to come. Now, pause just a moment and think about Titus. Would Titus have expected Paul to be so overjoyed at his coming? Perhaps not. Probably not. And he didn't see himself fulfilling that role of encouragement to him when he arrived. But nevertheless, that's what happened. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was facing this ogre of spiritual depression as he anticipated what lay ahead. When he was in that situation, I can imagine what could have run through his mind. Now remember, Jesus is fully God. He knew nothing of depression prior to becoming a human being. But He took on human flesh in order that He might understand us fully. He could have understood us in a sense, in a deep sense, if He had never become a human being. But He had to become one of us. And part of His becoming one of us was He was tempted in every way as we are tempted yet without sin. But nevertheless, the Bible says in Hebrews 2.18 that Jesus suffered when He was tempted. He was suffering because He was under such a horrible, intensive attack of Satan. And perhaps these thoughts, this is my sanctified imagination, I can't say for sure what ran through the mind of Jesus as he was struggling in this situation. But what I would imagine is these thoughts were insinuated to him by the demon of all demons, Satan. He might have thought to himself, This won't work. What I'm about to do won't Accomplish the mission that the Father and I conspired together to bring salvation to the world. And He was struggling in His humanity. Understand, Jesus is fully human. And He had all the feelings that you and I have. And He dealt with all of those feelings properly, for sure. Well, the first thing that you and I need to know when we're having trouble with Sadness or depression, despondency. We need to have some people around us who are following the Lord and loving the Lord. People who themselves have overcome trouble in their lives as they trusted Christ. And it's important that we understand this. I'm going to ask you to keep your place for a moment in Matthew 26 and go to John's Gospel, chapter 12. John chapter 12. We're going to look at verse 27 of chapter 12. And then we're going to look at two verses in chapter 14. This is a very similar statement to the one that Jesus made to his apostles at the moment that we're looking at in the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 27 says... Now, my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Now, let me pause just a moment and take note of the fact that when Jesus says these things, all the apostles were present. Even Judas was present. He had yet to betray the Lord. And so the pressure was not quite as big on Jesus at this moment. But He makes this statement about His troubled soul. That intensified as He moved toward His crucifixion. Now turn to chapter 14, verse 1. The Scripture says, these are the words of Jesus also, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. So here we hear Jesus saying to Jesus, his apostles now less Judas. Judas has already gone to do the dirty work of betraying Jesus and leading the temple guard to arrest Jesus in the garden. But here Jesus is saying to his apostles, "Don't let your heart be troubled." What has he said just previously in John 12:27, "My soul is troubled." So what is the deal? Are we hearing a contradictory message? From Jesus in this situation? Absolutely not. Jesus would never contradict Himself. Here's what we can gain from these two statements. And if you go to verse 27, what does it say? Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. Here is what's going on. Understand what we saw just a few moments ago. Jesus suffered when he was tempted, he did not yield to temptation. He never sinned. He operated in faith the entire time. He was a man of faith throughout his whole humanity on earth. And so what was going on was, and what we learned from this is, it's not a sin to be tempted in this area. It's not a sin to feel despondency and depression when you're under pressure from the devil. When he gets to what he has to say to his apostles and to us, in effect, in John 14, 1, it literally means stop letting your heart be troubled. Believe in God, put your faith in God, and believe also in me. What we see in this passage of Scripture in Matthew 26, Jesus is putting His trust in the Father. We're going to see this in just a moment. He's putting His trust in the Father. He's setting the pace for His men. He does that for us as men and women. He shows us how to deal with this pressure. We're to surround ourselves with like-minded followers of Jesus Christ. Do you have a few people in your life? Two or three people who are such people? If you don't, by all means, ask God to give you people. Start reaching out to people. And see yourself as a person who can be a resource in such a situation. That's the beginning of having a Christ-like approach to depression. Here's a second principle we see as we now go back to Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 and following. Let those who do surround you, who are following Jesus, in on your struggle. This is why I ask that we read from Exodus chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. You hopefully have that freshly on your mind. Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, meets him somewhere in the Sinai desert. And when he meets him in Typical Middle Eastern fashion, when people meet each other, people who are friends, as Jethro was, to Moses and Moses of Jethro, they come and they greet each other, and they inquired about one another's spiritual well-being. They wanted to know, how is your welfare? The word translated welfare in Exodus 18, in this interchange, is the word shalom. How is your shalom? Shalom. Ordinarily, when we think of shalom, what do we think of? What is the English equivalent of that in our thinking? It's peace. But shalom is more than the absence of conflict. Shalom simply means the best which life offers, the best that God can give to you. How's it going is what they said to each other. And then the Scripture tells us that Moses began to unfold the story of how God had delivered Egypt out of bondage and all that was involved in that and he also told him about the hardships they had faced it faced on the journey. I can only imagine if I had been a part of the group of Jewish descendants of Abraham as they left over 400 years. bondage, Do you think there would have been a lot of joy, a lot of elation? Little did they know that they were going to face hardship on the way. And they faced it, a lot of it, a whole lot of it. And I noticed the way that the translation translates it, hardship on the journey. Do you know what the Christian life is repeatedly compared to? A walk. Have you noticed that? It's a walk. It's a journey. And when we go through this life, what we can expect without bringing bad news into our lives is that there is going to be hardship. We know this. What about the Apostle Paul? In 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardship we faced in the province of Asia. Paul could have covered that up, couldn't he? After all, he was the leader. He's the one who had founded the church. It was he who was the spiritual parent of all those who had come to know Christ. Had he not come there, they would not have had the gospel. But he let his guard down, didn't he? He was not going to hide the fact that the life of following Jesus Christ is pockmarked with hardship. It's not all hardship. But there is hardship along the way. And in the case of Jesus, he let his apostles in on this matter. Verse 37. Let's look at it again before we look at verse 38 in Matthew 26. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. You notice the way Matthew reports this? Before he reports what Jesus said to Peter, James, and John, he describes how Jesus was grieved and distressed. So there were visible physical signs of Jesus being grieved and distressed. He was not hiding that from him. I can hear going. Back in using my sanctified imagination one more time. I can only imagine what impact that would have had and how unsettling that would have been to these three men as they witnessed what they witnessed. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 7, listen to what the writer says about Jesus. In the days of His flesh, He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying... And tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Jesus was wailing. It was not some sort of whimper. This is loud crying. They had never witnessed that before. They had seen him shed tears over his beloved Jerusalem. He wept. They had seen him at the graveside of Lazarus, his good friend. And when he saw what he saw in that particular setting, he wept. Those words are more controlled weeping as compared to what we read in Hebrews chapter 5 about Jesus' loud crying and distress. So, Jesus lets them in on his struggle. Just like Paul, in Imitation of Christ... Let his people, whom he had spiritually fathered, he let them in on the trouble that he was experiencing. Let me go back, as we finish this part of the teaching, to what Paul said. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. That sounds vaguely familiar when you put it alongside what Jesus is saying. They felt the sentence of death. But this happened, he went on to say, that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. So when you and I find ourselves under such great pressure, Because of our identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, the Apostle Paul would never have found himself in that situation had he not been on mission for the Lord. The Lord compelled him to preach the Gospel. He said, I have a compulsion. I cannot keep quiet, reminiscent of what Jeremiah said about the Word of God. The Word of God is like fire in my bones. I've tried to be quiet about it. I can't. The same was true for the great Apostle Paul. And when we are serving the Lord, I'm not talking about preachers here, okay? I'm including myself in that. But understand, this is our assignment. All of us are to be servants of the Lord. In our homes, in our church, in our community, we are to be the servants of the Lord. And with that service comes a whole lot of pushback on the part of the powers of darkness. We need to understand this. And so we need to be able to share what's going on with us. We don't have to tell the whole world, but remember that small group of brothers and/or sisters in Christ who love the Lord, are growing in the Lord, following the Lord. They are not exempt. They know what it's like. Earlier in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes this, He says, about God, He is the God of all comfort and the Father of all mercies who comforts us in our affliction. So that when we have passed through that phase, it may not be the last time we have that kind of situation, but we have passed through. And the way we got through it is we were comforted by the God of all comfort. And typically, listen carefully, typically God uses others who have passed through the fire of trouble, to bring help to us in our trouble. Not always. The Word of God, of course, is key in reading to receive what the Lord has for us. And when I share things with people, listen carefully to this. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. The Bible says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of a disciple so that I may have a word to sustain the weary one, In whatever difficulty that person may have. Morning by morning, He awakens me to listen so that I can be a tool in His hand. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that's why the Lord awakens you every morning. To open the Word of God. To come for fellowship. To be encouraged by Him through the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is the comforter. The Word simply means one who is called alongside to Help you. Not in English, it doesn't mean that, although there's some hint of that in the Word. But in the original language, that's the Word. It's a Word which is a compound Word. To be called alongside, to give assistance to someone. This is the Holy Spirit of God. He teaches us through His Word. He speaks to us. And I'm so happy when He speaks to me. I don't know about you. Sometimes, initially, I'm not very happy because He pinpoints some sin in my life, some attitude. And I don't like to be exposed like that. I go ahead and say, thank you, Lord. And I confess and repent of that sin. But in the long term, it always is positive, isn't it? So surround yourself with friends who are Christ's followers. Let them in on your struggle. Just like Jesus did. Just like Moses did. Just like the Apostle Paul did. Here's the third thing, if we go back to... Our passage in Matthew 26, a Christ-like approach to depression, also includes enlisting the prayer support of that group of people. Verse 38, Then Jesus said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Just hang out with me. And don't simply hang out with me. Please pray for me. I'm desperate, is really what Jesus was saying. Please pray for me. Is there any evidence that the Apostle Paul asked for help in the form of prayer from those to whom he wrote? Well, of course. Virtually every one of his letters concludes with the plea for prayer support. The one that's most noticeable in my mind is in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. And he calls himself an ambassador in chains. I love the attitude of the apostle, huh? How many people in prison would say, hey, I'm here on mission for Jesus, and not because they're in some kind of prison ministry. It's because they are in jail for breaking the law. Whatever it may be. So he's there in prison... He said, pray for me that I will have boldness and clarity in the presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we enlist the prayer support. When somebody comes to you and that someone asks for your prayer support, please say, I will gladly pray for you. And be consistent in following through with the promise to pray for that person. We have no idea, and we will not until life is over and we're in heaven, as to how God used our prayers to help people who were struggling in this life. Let's move on to another aspect of a Christ-like approach to depression, and that is simply to pour your heart out to God the Father. As we read further in verse 39, And he went a little beyond them, and fell on his face and prayed. Get the picture? Saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He's begging the Father to let this cup pass from him. If it's possible, Lord. It wasn't possible, was it? Jesus knew it wasn't possible, but in His humanity, He was struggling against what lay ahead. He knew that God was going to make him sin. I'm talking about Jesus literally becoming sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. This is the Gospel. It was God the Father's idea, and Jesus agreed to it in submitting to the orders that the Father gave to Him, it was God's idea that Jesus would find Himself, the Father's idea, in this kind of situation. How cruel, we might say, for God to put Jesus, who had never done anything wrong, in such a situation. But, had He not been placed in that situation, what chance would we have? Of knowing God. None whatsoever. We would still be lost. Our sins would not have been forgiven. Because it took another human being who was sinless to substitute in for us who are sinful in order that God the Father to maintain His own integrity of justice and holiness to save us from our sins. Amazing what the Lord has done. It's right for you and me to pour our hearts out to the Father. I've counseled people before who are in great distress, depression. And you have to swallow kind of hard sometimes when you tell the person, uh, you know, the Lord may not take this problem away from you. But what He can do and will do if you trust Him, He'll give you what is necessary to walk through the valley of the shadow of death because He's with you and He has a purpose. The devil thought he had won a great victory when Jesus was crucified. First of all, he worked in the minds of people like Judas and Caiaphas and Annas, the co-high priest and members of the Sanhedrin to get Jesus arrested and then falsely accused, and then found guilty, according to Jewish law, of blaspheming God by calling himself God. And then they worked it in relationship with Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman emperor's representative there. He was, in effect, the voice of the emperor there in this region of the world. Got him to declare that Jesus had committed treason if you will, by calling himself a king. And so all of that was worked. Satan was behind the scenes. He used human instruments for that. And then what happens? Well, what we see happen is Jesus is crucified. And this gave great delight to the religious leaders of the day because the reason they didn't want to, they had reason and right, according to their way of thinking, to have Jesus stoned. That was the means whereby someone who blasphemed God would be executed by stoning. But they knew that that would have, in some ways, ratified who Jesus says He is. Because the prophets were stoned, weren't they? Sure. But they knew if they could get Jesus crucified... That the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, says, in effect, cursed is every man who is hanged on a tree. And so, they wanted Jesus to be hanged on the tree. So did God the Father. Because sin had to be cursed. As I mentioned just a moment ago, our sin was cursed in Christ when He died on the cross. God does cause all things to work together to good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Without exception, God does take things that are horrific on the surface and transforms those things and us in the process into the men and women He wants us to be. Now turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Using Paul as an illustration of this, again, we're going to look at verse 7 and following of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. May I stop here just a moment? So, You understand what's being said here. The Apostle Paul received a thorn in his flesh. There's great debate as to what form that thorn took. Likely it was a physical ailment, probably something to do with an eye disease that he contracted in the region of Galatia. When you read between the lines, and you don't have to read a whole lot between the lines, he had an eye illness that he contracted there. Read the book of Galatians, the last chapter especially. And this thorn in the flesh was troublesome to him. It hurt him, undoubtedly. It clouded his vision. But also, it was disfiguring. It made him hard to look at. And here he was. You would be self-conscious. I would be, too, if I had such a situation where your eyes may have been oozing some sort of pus or something at times and really disfiguring. And he asked Jesus, how many times does he ask Jesus to take it away? Three times. Three times. Three times. And what does Jesus say each time? No, no, no. And he didn't because he did not want Paul to exalt himself. Paul was so successful, incredibly successful from an outsider's point of view. And spiritually incredible. But God knew the danger that was associated with so much success. And he did this in order to keep Paul in a position of humility. And this is what we need to understand. And here's a question. A messenger from Satan? Let me stop and ask you this question. Would Satan ever bring a messenger to a person who is a follower of Christ that would keep that person from exalting herself or himself? Hardly, the snare of the devil is pride. His own pride got him kicked out of heaven. And what we need to understand is, who had to allow the messenger of Satan to come to Paul? Who? God had to. This is not very popular theology, but it's thoroughly scriptural. It's in the Bible. Our God is a sovereign God. And he makes no mistakes. The Bible says, If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much will your Father, who is perfect, give good gifts to you? Satan gained permission to sift Paul like wheat. Just like Luke 22 talks about how God gave Satan permission to sift Peter. And the other apostles, like wheat. And it was all to form the person of Christ in us, the image of Christ, to make us like Christ. Remember what Hebrews 5.8 says? We looked at 5.7 earlier. It says this, Jesus learned obedience through what He suffered. Jesus had never sinned. He needed a deeper level of understanding of what it meant to obey as a human being. And God uses that, and God is glorified in our lives. When we go through trouble properly, pour your heart out of the Father, to the Father. Here's the fifth thing, Now I've already sort of breached over into this. entrust yourself to the Father's sovereign grace. Twyla Paris, a popular singer of yesteryear, probably 25 or 30 years ago, I heard a lyric from one of her songs. One line stands out to me, and it's relevant to what we're talking about today. She says, When I cannot trace God's hand, I can always trust His heart. Our God loves us. We sung of the deep, deep love of Jesus. Great hymn. He loves us. And we don't understand why always, especially in the moment, we're having such struggle in our lives. Why don't you show up, Lord? Why don't you do something? Do you care about me, Lord? Yes, He does care about us. More than we will ever know. To the point that He gave His only Son to die for us. We have to trust our God's faithfulness. And His love for us, and know that He is indeed going to use what we're going through to glorify Himself. Hebrews thirteen fifteen. Through Him, that would be through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips which give thanks to His name. So let's parse that just a moment. Through Jesus, how often are we to give praise to the Father? Always. And what is that praise described as being? A sacrifice. In order to praise the Lord all the time, to thank Him all the time. And this isn't the only place in Scripture where we're told to do that. In order for that to happen, I must die to myself. I must die to what I see with these eyes. I must die to my feelings that I'm going through. Jesus had all that to deal with because what does He say in Matthew 26? Father, if it's possible, He said it three times, just like Paul asked three times, if it's possible, deliver me from this situation. But how does He conclude the prayer? Not my will, but Your will be done. He gave Himself fully to the sovereign grace and will of God. And that is to be true of us too. If we're going to deal with the despondency and the difficulties that come with being people who are committed to Christ and are following the Lord Jesus Christ, through Him then let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise. Now, this is where we fall short a lot the fruit of lips. We praise Him in our heart. Is that legitimate? Of course it is. But we need to praise Him with our mouths. And let's look at the last part. This is critically important. Praise Him, the fruit of lips, to give thanks to the Lord. This is the New American Standard Translation I'm quoting from. But actually the word, give thanks, it's not the word. I don't know why the translators don't translate the word as it should be translated. And I'm acting a little out of character here to do that because I'm not a scholar and the people who translate our Bibles are. But the word is actually the word, is a compound word, which means to say the same thing. Is exactly what it means? It's the word translated in 1 John 1.9, for instance, which says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's the word confess. So let's substitute the word confess there in Hebrews 13.15. The fruit of lips which confess His name. What does that have to do with what's being said there? It has everything to do with it. What is Jesus' name? When Jesus became one of us, suffered the indignity of being poor, of being rejected as a human being, all the things, what, what name did He receive? He became obedient even to death, death on a cross. And God therefore gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord is the highest name. And what does Lord suggest? It suggests sovereignty. Sovereignty. Jesus is sovereign. And when we begin to think about the sovereign grace of God and the sovereign power of Jesus, it helps us. It eases our distress. It helps us to exhale and relax and trust the Lord in the face of all the opposition that the devil can throw at us. It's painful. It was painful for Jesus. It was painful for Paul. But with Christ in control, we trust Him. Jesus has to be our Lord. And probably the biggest test of whether He's Lord is what we do when we're in trouble, when we're having trouble, the sort that Paul dealt with and, of course, Jesus. Now, the last part of this approach to depression that's Christ-like is not found in this text. In Matthew, so I'm going to ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look at verse 2. We're going to look past our struggle to the joy that it will lead to. That's the last thing we need to remember. This is what enabled Jesus to stay the course to not come off the cross. The Bible says in Hebrews 12:2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the Author. "...and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God." What was the joy set before Jesus? The name that is above every name. He was exalted. And then He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God the Father. The throne which had been vacant during the 33 years or so of his life on earth, he resumed that position. He was honored. He must have enjoyed the glory that was restored to him. And more than that, knowing that he had not failed on his mission, he had trusted the Lord. Now turn a couple of pages toward the back to James chapter 1. Verse 12. This is for you and me. We fix our eyes on Jesus. And by the way, the idea is to continually look at Jesus. We have so many distractions in this life as 21st century people and American people. So many distractions. It's hard to keep a central focus and a constant focus on the Lord. But it's possible. And it's key to our being overcomers and not be defeated by Satan in this life. Look what awaits us. Verse 12 says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. This is the promise of the Lord. We're not in this life only looking for some kind of reward in heaven. We're in it because we love the Lord, right? And we're willing to suffer the consequences of being a follower of Christ. But at the same time, we need to understand how to deal with those moments and periods, maybe weeks, months, years of depression, as we trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You for being such a wonderful Savior and Master. When we look at what you endured in the Garden of Gethsemane and then on the cross, we are embarrassed that we would ever whine and complain about the little hardship we face. But we know you're with us no matter what. Thank you that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. And you've promised us as an alternative to anxiety If we praise You and pray, Lord, we will indeed be men and women who experience a peace which passes all understanding and guards our hearts and our minds in You. We ask this in Your name. Amen.